The text for today's message is found in Romans, the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Father in heaven, come now afresh for a special anointing for the word. You have been with us in this service till now and have applied truth to us in song and prayer. And you have touched our souls and called out from us genuine affections for you. And we are thankful that you have met us. And now, Lord, for a few more minutes, as we take heed to your holy word, meet us again in life-changing, soul-saving power. Father, come. Leave us not to our own resources here. My words are as nothing. Leaves in the wind compared to your mighty sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Revealing the secret things of the heart. Laying us bare before the mighty blazing eyes of him with whom we have to do. O oh God, preach. God, teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe last Sunday was a helpful message in that you like to hear about soup and styrofoam bowls and pushing cars with dead batteries and 
taking off masks in small groups. And if, if you found it practical and helpful, then think of this morning's message as moving back from chapter 12, where we saw those things, to chapter 6, in order to put foundations under that building. Now, the problem is that we Americans are very pragmatic. We want results. We want lists. We want them yesterday. We want them pain-free. We want them simple, not complicated. And therefore, in the church, the American church especially, we have created all kinds of christ coated quick fixes and solutions and programs that smooth out the problems of our lives, make lives a little more livable, and don't go very deep. Therefore, we're not the kind of saints that many of our forefathers were. We're not sages, by and large. We're not very strong in the midst of pain and suffering and persecution. We are pretty thin-skinned and pretty flimsy saints. J.I. Packer has a very good book called Quest for Godliness about the Puritans. And he compares the Puritans to the Redwoods in California. You can drive through a Redwood. You can drive your car through a Redwood. A living one. So he said the Redwoods are like the old British Puritans who lived from 1550 to 1700. Many of them died for their faith in that the roots go unbelievably deep down into the soil of the Bible. And the branches of these lives go unbelievably high up into the mysteries of heaven. And the trunks of these Puritan trees, like the redwoods, sustain forest fires and do not die, but only get scorched. That's how strong and deep and high are the redwoods of California. And he said the Puritans were like that. And then he ran his eyes over the contemporary American pragmatic, quick fix, mile wide, inch deep church And he said, affluence seems for the past generation to have been making dwarfs and deadheads of us all. So much impatience with depth. So much impatience with complexity. So much impatience with pain. Just give me a list. Tell me how to make soup. Tell me how to push a car. Tell me how to... Take the mask off. And I'll do it. But don't bend my brain with complexity and mystery and make me think. And by all means, don't create any discomfort or pain for me. Because frankly, I just want my life to go a little better. And you remember, I hope many of you women do, especially that some months, maybe it was years now ago, I I waved the banner before the women and I said, Can we see... In the coming decades, hundreds of women who are sages at Bethlehem. There aren't many sages in the American church. Sages. Roots unbelievably deep in the Bible. 
Branches unbelievably high in the glories of heaven. A life lived of 10, 20, 30, 50 years of suffering and pain and confusion and fought it all through and thought it all through. And now young women flocking to to you to get wisdom for life. Where are the sages, men and women? I'll tell you, they all checked out at Romans 6. Or maybe a little earlier. They just want Romans 12. Just give me Romans 12. Thank you. Give me the list. That's the way American men and women are, by and large. Give me a list. Tell me what to do. Don't complicate matters with theology and complexity. Don't bend my brain. Don't create any discomfort for me. And nobody becomes a sage like that. In fact... When you do that, when you say, let's just jump from justification to application in chapter 12. Let's leave 6, 7, 8, and by all means 9, and 10, and 11 out. Let's just shorten this book. You know, when the Puritans looked at the Bible, that's not the way they thought. Which is why they were... Redwoods. This book, Romans, is 16 chapters long, not six. And not two. The Puritans looked at the Bible and they said, life is another way. Life is built another way than by jumping from chapter 5 to chapter 12. That's what the Puritans said, and they became redwoods. Redwoods are built from 3 to 11. And then the fruit grows. I don't know if redwoods have fruit, but fix the image. (laughs) And we pragmatic, quick-fix, solve-my-problem, help-me-feel-better... American pragmatists, we want to get to the soup as fast as we can. And please don't tell me I'm dead in Christ because I don't get it. And frankly, I'd rather not spend a half an hour thinking about it. I just want to just tell me what to do. And we develop programs to tell them what to do. Little short books, lists all over the place, stick figures like this. And that's, that's the church. So where are the sages? Why are so many young women and so many young men longing, longing for mentoring relationships where there's some depth to it all? Instead of, here's your list. Go do your devotions. Well, my answer is, um, don't skip Romans 6. Or seven, or eight, or nine, or ten, or eleven, and don't read them fast, and don't do it in a year. I really am not eager to fix your problems quick and easy, frankly. I'd like you to be a problem fixer in 50 years, really deep, with 10,000 waves of pain having broken over your life in the meantime, and you survived. And became strong. 
so that I can die and go to heaven. And there are hundreds of mighty men and mighty women of God scattered all over the world who know Romans 6, know what it means to die, know what it means to live, know what it means to reckon yourself dead, reckon yourself alive, know the inner deep dynamics of the Christian life that holds you where you need to be instead of just, I got my list. Oh, where's the list? Where's the list? Somebody just told me they're depressed. Where's the list? So, let's go. If you want to go with me, let's go. If you don't, look for another church. Because we're going to be here for quite a while. In 6 and uh, so on. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? You know what raised this problem? We've been here before. We don't need to say this too much again. Justification is so free. Getting right with God is so easy. It's dangerously easy. It looks like we should go on sinning so that the grace of forgiveness and imputed righteousness would it be exalted in my sinning. That's what it looked like. And so if somebody asks, and Paul repeats the question, should we sin that the grace of forgiveness would just abound all the more? And his answer is in verse 2, may it never be. And if you ask him, why not? It seems to follow. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Rhetorical question, remember from two weeks ago? It's a statement. Those who've died to sin can't live in it. Your question betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of how you are connected to Jesus. You can't go on living in it. So I just want to, in this message this morning, ask two questions. One, in what sense have you, Christian, died? And two, in what sense and to what extent are you, Christian, free from sin? Now, daily. Those are my two questions. So right at this point, the pragmatists are getting uneasy. And uh, thinking, oh my goodness, dead? I'm dead. I'm supposed to figure out how I'm dead. I just want to make soup and have a dozen people over for lunch today. I just want to push somebody when their battery's broken. I just want to be authentic at small group. Would you please not make me think about how I'm dead? Because I don't feel dead. And frankly, I think you're just going to draw me into a bunch of theology here. And doctrine. And I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that kind of person. What does that mean? You know, I feel when somebody says it to me, I'm not that kind of person. Just give me my list. I want to say, who do you think you are to decide who you are? The Bible will decide who you are. You don't decide who you are. And the Bible has Romans 6 in it. And it's meant to be read. And understood by all believers, even pre- or non-literate people should find a way to get this chapter into their heads. Who do you think you are to say, I'm not that kind of person? 
The Bible, God Almighty will tell us who we are. We will not tell him who we are. And he will say to us, you are a person created in my image, heart and head. I don't expect you to be a scholar necessarily, but I expect you to be able to read and understand Romans 6 and live it. I didn't inspire it for nothing. In fact, you know what you're saying? If at this point in the sermon or at any point in the sermon, you say, oh my, this is getting complicated. Dead, alive, reckon yourself dead, we are dead. How does that work? Got to think here. Ooh, I don't like to think. I'm not a thinker. If you get to that point and start to check out, you know what you're saying. You're saying, what I really want to be is a cattail in the swamp, not a redwood by the ocean. That's what I really want to be. Cattails are fun. Put them on the dining room table. Wave them around. Cattails are fun. That's the key word in evangelicalism today. That's a fun meeting. That's a fun group. That's a fun song. That's a fun doctrine. I've never heard that. Because the fun people don't care about doctrine. You want to be a cattail? You don't want to be a cattail. You want to be a redwood. You've just been taught it's too hard. It takes too long, too much pain. So, here I am again, pleading with you. Would you come on in with me for the next 15 minutes or so? And 10 years or so? And work with me to try to understand. This morning, just two questions. Number one, died to sin? Verse 2, died to sin? In what sense, John? In what sense are we dead to sin? Not, he's talking to believers here. We know that when he says, we died to sin, or how should we who died to sin still live in it? He's talking to believers. We know that because of what he says about baptism. And baptism is baptism into Christ. And baptism is what you do when you believe. And I'll come back next week and talk about baptism. I'm not going to talk about it this morning. Here's my answer to the question. In what sense have you died to sin? I get the answer from verse 5. For if we have become united with him, with Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I just want you to see the phrase, we have become united with with him. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, From him we are in Christ Jesus. The NASB translates it, By his doing we are in Christ Jesus. Here's my way of stating it. God establishes a union between believers and Jesus Christ, such that when Christ died, believers died. And that's my answer to the question. In what sense am I dead to sin? Answer, spiritually, God, in a way only he can do, has united you to Christ. There's a union between you and Christ. In God's mind and way of reckoning. And 
as unified with Christ, as verse 5 says, when he died, you died with him. His death was your death. Confirm this in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. There it is again. So where, where, where did I die, Paul, when you say I died to sin? When and where did I die? Answer, Golgotha, 30 A.D. Believer, you died in Christ, with Christ. Confirm it again in verse uh, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall live with him. There it is again. So you've got died with Christ in verse 8, crucified with Christ in verse 6, united with him in his death, verse 5, and we died to sin in verse 2. And they all mean the same thing, and they interpret one another. So, my answer to my first question is, you can't go on in sin because you've died to sin. That is... You were united to Christ such that when he died, you died with him. And what was true for him is now regarded as true for you. His death is your death. Now, this should not come as a surprise to us who have read verses 12 to 21 of chapter 5. Because you remember what happened there? Adam is held up as one person, Christ is held up as another person, and those who are united to Adam have the guilt and condemnation of Adam imputed to them, and those who are united to Christ have the righteousness and acceptance of Christ imputed to them. So already we have seen in the Adam-Christ typology of chapter 5 this tremendous truth of union with Christ. And now, here's the new thing in chapter 6. Not only does our union with Christ provide the foundation for our justification, that is, our getting right with God and being declared acceptable and innocent, it also now provides the foundation of our sanctification. Are becoming holy, becoming like Him. Union with Christ is so tremendously important. So leave the soup aside for a minute. Leave the pushing of the car aside for a minute. Leave the small group mask lifting aside for a minute. And ponder your union with Jesus. If this means nothing to you, Fire on your soup. What good's it going to do anybody? Your pushing of cars, you're putting on the good face or trying to strip off the old face. What good's it going to do if you don't get it that you're one with Jesus? And that in this union of verse 5 of chapter 6, the clearest statement in the New Testament of it probably is the foundation of your getting right with God through justification and your walking in fellowship with God in sanctification. They're both there, the key. It's the foundation for which you can make progress in holiness and avoid the censure of verse 2. May it never be. That's my answer to question number one.
Now, question number two. In what sense do we no longer sin? Back to the question. How shall we who died still live in it? It's a statement. You who have died can't still live in it. Dead men don't sin. Now, here's the key question, right, in everybody's mind. Yikes. I sin. So am I not a Christian? Is this teaching perfectionism? That's the question we want answered, right? I want that answered. I want to know, does Paul, the inspired apostle, believe that when you become a Christian and die with Christ, you don't sin anymore? I'd be in big trouble if that were true, which means I'm in a dangerous situation because I might want to read my experience in here, right? So I come off okay. So you test. I don't think he's teaching perfectionism. I don't think Paul means that when you become a Christian, you have decisively died in such a way that you never sin again in this world. don't think he means that. Three reasons. Number one, and, and they get stronger in my judgment. And the third one carries the day entirely for me. Number one, he says not that you can't commit a sin if you died, but you don't live in it. And that live in it in verse 2 corresponds to the continue in it from verse 1. So the question I asked in verse 1 is, how shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Just go on, unhindered, unbroken pattern of sinning. Continue in it. And then he answers, no, can't live in it if you've died. So might not live in it be different from commit sins? Is there a difference between being a person who's been fundamentally changed at the root, a new direction given to your life, and yet there is stumbling and imperfection and sinning? I think there's a big difference. And so I don't think in verse 2 he is saying there is total perfection in the practical life of the believer after they die with Christ. Second reason. In verse 6, it says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, no longer be enslaved to the slave master of sin. And I ask myself the question, Okay, your fundamental concern here, Paul, is to get me free from my slave master's sin. Is it possible that there's a difference between being freed from the mastery and dominion and slavery of sin and never sinning? Can we be free from the slave master in the sense that he doesn't totally dominate us and control us and exert decisive power on us, and yet sometimes we still act like we're in his sway and sin? And I think there is a difference. In fact, look at verse 14. Where it says, for sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. That master over you shall not be slave master, shall not have dominion over you. That is a freedom that we should enjoy. But I don't think in there is a statement, you never practically do a sin. But rather, there's this mastery that must be broken. 
Now, here's my third reason, and to me, it's decisive. Notice the commands of verses 11, 12, and 13. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. That's a command to wage war on who you are. Be in conflict with an old identity. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why would he call us to wage war on an old sovereign if there were no war to be fought, but we were automatically sinless because we died with Jesus? I don't think these commands would make any sense. Third, verse 13, do not go on presenting your members the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Don't go on presenting them to your old slave master. Stop doing that. He's talking to Christians. Don't do that anymore. Stop that. So what I hear in these three commands, 11, 12, 13, is make war on sin Make war on old impulses that crop up. Make war on the old powers that begin to take hold on you and fight them. And that's not the language of sinless perfection. That's the language of war. And I believe Christian life is war. So that's my answer to the second question. So let me step back now and sum it up. Just these two questions. Question number one. Christian, do you understand? Have you got a category in your mind and a place in your affection? You know, we said with the fighter verse, how precious to me are your thoughts. These are some of them. Are these precious to you? I'm asking you right now. Are these thoughts precious to you? And for them to be precious, you have to get them a little bit. You have to get them. You can't just have words going in your ear. And then you forget the words. That's not what's precious. Sound isn't precious. Reality is precious. And reality is borne along by thoughts. And thoughts are enlivened from the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. So what's precious here? What is this dying? Do you understand? And the answer was, we are unified with Christ. God simply arbitrarily creates and establishes a spiritual unity. I'm sure there's mystery here that we can't begin to delve to the bottom of. But there it is. We are one with Jesus Christ. So that when he died, we say I was crucified with him. We say I died with him. We say I was united with him in the likeness of his death. We say I died to sin in Christ. So that, let me put it this way, my, I, um, what word should I use? I wanted to say, almost said ideal. That may be all right. My truest position and my truest identity is Christ and me in union with him, sinlessly perfect. Freed from power and freed from guilt of sin. That's my truest identity and my truest position. Keep that in your mind. 
And my answer to the second question was, to what extent are we dead to sin? Or to what extent do we sin if we have died to sin? And here, I want to develop, in conclusion, just a simple little already not yet model for you. You know this. may not have used those words, but you know this. Here's what we're saying is, if my truest position and my truest identity is that I am sinless in Christ Jesus, His righteousness is made over to me, I have died in Him, the power and the guilt of sin are totally broken, and in Him there is no power over me to condemn me or to cause me to stumble. That's my truest identity. The question is, how much of that true identity can I have now? In what measure is it already, and in what measure is it not yet? All right? Now, I think this text gives three alreadies and one not yet. Number one, we are already justified. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Justification is fundamentally, decisively a past event. It cannot be improved upon. It doesn't get better because the righteousness of Christ imputed to us does not improve. He's the same yesterday, today, and to ever, forever. If, if his righteousness is mine, it's mine today, mine tomorrow, mine forever. You can't get it better. Already I'm justified because I'm united with Christ who is my righteousness. Second already, the power of my slave master sin is severed. He is not my master anymore. I may do things he likes. I may stumble into sin. I may act like I'm his slave from time to time. But the power by which he held me captive before I died with Jesus he does not have any more. And thirdly, already therefore I am able to make progress in holiness. Little by little, day by day, by faith, laying hold on all that God is for me in Jesus, I am enabled to get a measure of victory over my sin and the temptation that besets me every day. Those are three alreadies. The one not yet of this perfect position and identity is perfection. And I can't tell you ahead of time to what degree God, the Holy Spirit, may be pleased to bring you toward perfection. I just don't think you ever get there in this life. And I'll give you one little clue why I don't think you ever get there. And here I'll I'll close, perhaps, with this beautiful parallel from Philippians 3.12. You know, sometimes lights go on for us, and in our hearts, when we're struggling with a difficult text and some categories of thought that may be new for us, like, I'm dead and yet I'm alive, and I died then in Christ, and therefore positionally and in identity, I am perfect in Him and without sin in Him, and yet here I'm sinning. How can I handle all that? Sometimes lights go on for us 
when we hear another text that says exactly the same reality with very different words. And Philippians 3.12 is one of those spectacular parallels with this reality. So here's what it says. Philippians 3.12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained or am already perfect. So he refuses to be a perfectionist here. Not that I have already attained or am already perfect. Well, then how does he describe life? What is life for the Christian? Here's what he says. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's a great sentence. If you don't like complex sentences, you don't like the Bible. (laughs) Come on now. I'm finished. This is my concluding remark. And I want you with me. The soup will take care of itself. Pushing cars will take care of itself. Taking masks off will take care of itself. If you get this verse, I'll say it again. Not that I have already obtained... Or am already perfect. But what do I do? I see my my perfect position out there. I see my perfect identity in Christ out there. It has already happened in history. On Golgotha, 30 AD, I died. I rose. I'm united with Christ in heaven. I see it. What do I do? I press on. Now next week, next week, In this pulpit, I'm going to try to fill out all those commands. Because I think when Paul says, I press on, he's simply saying, I reckon myself dead. I don't present my members to ungodliness. I do the the commands of chapter 6. So come back and we'll talk about the practical. What does that mean not to present your members? What does it mean to reckon yourself dead? But here's the way Paul says it. I, I grasp, I reach out and I take hold of. Somebody asked me after the service. I am going to finish this verse. Somebody asked after the first service, do we do anything? Yes! Here it is. I reach out, I take hold of that for which he took hold of me. My reaching is because he reached in and took me. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 12. I I grasp and take hold of my, my reality, my identity, my Christ, my righteousness, my perfection, because He has taken me for it. Now that's categories of thought that are very precious. How precious to me are thy thoughts. And if you get that, and you spend the next 30 years... Trying to understand it deeper and deeper, you're going to be a sage. You're going to be a redwood. And when waves of tremendous pain and suffering and persecution are breaking over the church, people will sit at your feet. Tell me who I am. Tell me how to live the Christian life. Help me understand my sinning. Am I new or am I not new? Help me. I don't get it. We need hundreds and thousands of people like that. Let's pray. Oh God, there are a few perhaps in this room who are on the outside of what I'm saying. And they 
they wonder, well, was I included when Christ died? Did I die in him? And for those people, I just want to pray a closing prayer and invite them and any of you who are unsure of your standing to pray with me as I close. God, I believe that you exist and made the world and me. And I believe that you are just and holy and high and angry at sin. And God, I'm scared because I sin and I want your anger to be turned away from me. And I confess that I'm helpless if you don't save me. And I hear now, I hear that there was a a second Adam, a Christ, a Messiah, a Son of God, a Savior that you sent into the world and that when He died, He died for His people, as His people, and that He was righteous and that for those who believe, His righteousness becomes theirs and His death becomes theirs and all your wrath is turned away. I hear that and so... Wanting that and regarding that as beautiful, I believe in you. I trust in you as my only hope. And now, on the basis of your word, I reckon myself dead with Christ. And I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and help me to confirm in my life, my true identity in Jesus. Father, go with us all and make us redwoods for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.